Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the beginning of your Bible to the book of Genesis and chapter number 3. Genesis chapter number 3. There should be a Bible under a chair in front of you. If you don't have one, just turn in the front part of that to Genesis 3. We have launched a new series this fall we have entitled Amazing Grace. And I have to be frank with you, I was just totally giddy with excitement all week. Just totally, totally excited about the fact that I have the opportunity to highlight and to promote and to advertise and to extol the grace of God, and that motivates me. I was thinking this week, though, that the biggest challenge that I face is how am I going to squeeze this all into eight or nine sessions together? Because God's grace is so great. We said last week in our introduction that grace is at times misunderstood and is frequently underappreciated. And we said we have a goal for this series for all of us, and that comes out of 2 Timothy 2.1, and that is that we would be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's our goal together over these weeks. Now, some of us are a little weaker in the area of grace. And I was thinking this week about some signs that we have a weak grasp on grace. Here's several of them, six of them. We have a weak grasp on grace when we are confused about how we receive forgiveness from God. We know that we have a weak grasp on grace when we are unsure if we're going to be able to maintain our salvation. We have a weak grasp on grace when we are judgmental with those who are different from you. We are weak in our grasp of grace when we have trouble forgiving other people. We're weak there when we have difficulty being motivated to serve God. And we are weak in our grasp of grace when we struggle deeply with pride. So this is a good series for all of us. You might remember that we had a definition of grace that we gave last week, and we need to remember that definition. It's God's generous, undeserved goodness. That is His grace, His generous, undeserved goodness. It is a free and undeserved gift. It's not based on what we do, on what we promise. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on our merit. It is unearned, it's undeserved, it's unmerited, and that's why it is amazing. You know, there's a very common notion that exists in the Christian world today related to grace, and it goes something like this. The Old Testament of the Bible, oh, that was all about law and all about rules. The Old Testament is virtually graceless. In the New Testament, now, that's where grace first emerges. Many people run around thinking the Old Testament, it's all about, as we talked about last time, the merit principle, and grace is more about the New Testament, and the New Testament is where we see the grace principle. Remember that little chart we talked about last time? Well, all that leads to the plan that we have for today, and we're going to look at three things today. First of all, we're going to see that God has always been a God of grace. And secondly, we're going to see that God's grace is all over the place. 
And then thirdly, we're going to look at a key principle regarding grace. So that's our plan. That's where we're going. And we want to begin with the fact that God has always been a God of grace. Now remember the definition. It's God's generous, undeserved goodness. And we see that illustrated for us from the very beginning pages of the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis chapter 3. And I might remind you of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the open rebellion of Adam and Eve. Remember how God said, from every tree of the garden you may eat except for one. And the serpent, Satan, comes along, helps to deceive them, and Adam and Eve disobey God, and they and the whole human race are cast into sin. But I want you to see that even in that scene, all the way back in the very beginning, we see God's grace. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. Look at verse 21. You might remember when they sinned, Suddenly they were fully aware of their nakedness because of their guilt. Well, notice what happens in verse 21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Some animals were slain, and their skin was taken to cover their nakedness, which, by the way, was a forerunner of the information that would come from chapter 4 when there would need to be the sacrifice of an animal's life to atone for sin. You see what's happening here? You have this incredible rebellion, and God says, let me just make some things to cover you up, and I'm going to teach you about how you can atone for your sin. Did Adam and Eve deserve that? No. And then also in this section, in, in chapter 3 and verse 15, as he's going through some of the consequences, he talks about how, at verse 15, in seed form, there's going to be a future deliverer that's going to come to address this problem. And, and Satan, he's going to bruise you on your head, it says, and you, Satan, will bruise him on the heel. This is the very first indicator that there would be a future deliverer who would deal with Satan and ultimately solve the problem. So right in the middle of all of this rebellion going on, there's the seed form of the promise of a future deliverer. Did Adam and Eve deserve that? Did Adam and Eve earn that? No. See, that's the amazing grace of God where he extends his generous goodness to undeserving people. Now, I, I want to spend quite a bit of time really illustrating this from the Old Testament. So if you would, turn to chapter number 37 of Genesis, and we're going to see a tremendous illustration of the grace of God and how he extends his generous goodness to undeserving people. And it comes from the story of Joseph. And many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph. And I want to go through the story of Joseph, but that's not really where we're going to see grace illuminated. We're going to see grace illuminated from the backstory of the story of Joseph. And the backstory involves one of Joseph's brothers by the name of Judah. And we're going to see this in several acts. 
We're going to see the drama of God's grace. So it begins here in, in, in chapter 37. Now, just a little bit of background so you can remember this. Jacob had 12 sons. You might remember that he had seen Rachel and he fell in love with her and he wanted to marry her, but her father tricked him and he had to marry her sister Leah first. And so he's married to Leah and then later he gets married to Rachel and he has 12 sons. And to Leah is born Reuben and then Simeon and Levi and Judah and later Issachar and Zebulun. But later he gets married to Rachel and born to Rachel is Joseph and Benjamin. And then there were four more sons that were born to Leah and Rachel's maids. I'm setting that all up because I just want you to understand the flow of something that's important. What I really want you to realize is that born to Leah, the first wife, was Judah. Born to the second wife, the one he loved the most, was born Joseph. So Judah and Joseph, we're going to see them throughout this little drama that God is going to give us. Remember, Rachel, again, was the one that he he loved the most, and so when he got married to her and he had these two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, they were his favorites, but guess who was number one? His number one favorite son out of all of those was Joseph. And you might remember the story is that, that Jacob treated Joseph very special. Or you might remember he'd made this special coat of many colors, very, very expensive. The only son who got it was Joseph, this long robe that he had. And if you look at chapter 37... What happens is that Joseph is 17 years of age, and he has mostly older brothers, and he's out pasturing the flock with them. And notice it says, and Joseph brought back a bad report to his father Joseph about them. You see, basically what was happening here is that he was really treated special, and he had this propensity to tattle on his brothers. They would go out to to do their job at the flock, Some of the brothers were probably, you know, goofing off. I don't know what all they were doing, going fishing or whatever. And he would report back to dad and say, whoa, 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 you know, my brothers were doing this. And then, of course, Jacob would respond. And so what ends up happening, verse 4, his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated Joseph and would not even speak to him on friendly terms. And then it goes on, it gets even worse, and uh, Joseph has two dreams in verses 6 to 9, and he wants to tell his family about this. He says, hey, we were binding sheaves in the field in this dream, and, and look, my sheaf rose up and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around, and they bowed down to my sheaf. <laughs> Boy, that fueled a lot of good feelings. And then there was a, another dream in the next couple of verses um, that he has about everybody's basically bowing down to me. And that created a lot of hard feelings. And the resentment hardened against Joseph. In, in uh, verses 13 and 14, Jacob gives Joseph an assignment. The boys are going to go out to a different area, and they're going to shepherd the flock. And he basically says to him, what I want you to do is I want you to go check on the welfare of your brothers there, verse 14, and the welfare of the flock, and then bring word back to me. You go tell me what they're doing, right or wrong, and you come back and give me the report. Well, all of this, if you remember the basic story of Joseph, leads to a plot. And in verses 18 to 22, we see the plot. When he comes from a distance, before he even actually got close, the brothers plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes that silly dreamer. Now, what we need to do is we need to kill him and throw him into one of the pits. 
and we could cover our story that we didn't really do it, but a wild beast devoured him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard this, and remember, he is the firstborn of the entire group. He rescued Joseph out of their hands. He said, let's not really do this right now. Let's not do that. And ultimately, you see at the end of verse 22, his plan was that somehow he was going to be able to rescue Joseph from his brothers and get him back home safely. But something happens. Reuben has to leave for a while. And in verse 25, the brothers are sitting down to a meal, and as they raise their eyes and look, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. And basically, they decided to come up with a new plan. And I want you to see in verses 26 to 28 who the leader and the initiator really was of all of this. We find out because in verse 26, Judah says to his brothers, ah, here's the plotter, here's the instigator. And the more he thought about it, he said, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and just cover up his blood? How about if we sell him to the Ishmaelites? Let's just sell him. Not only do I want to do wrong to him, I want to make money from the deal. We sell him to these human traffickers. He'll be gone and we'll be richer. This is a double deception. And of course, he's incredibly calloused towards his father's feelings. He doesn't care what Jacob thinks. He just wants to make some money. So virtually, as verses 31 to 34, as the story goes, they, they take the tunic, uh, they slaughter a goat, they dip the tunic in the blood, they take it home to dad. See, this is what we found. And the idea is that he was eaten by a wild beast. In verse 34, Jacob tears his clothes, which is a supreme frustration and mourning, and he puts sackcloth on and he mourns the loss of Joseph for many days. Of course, you know the story. They take Joseph to Egypt. A whole series of events happen. Eventually, Joseph becomes number two in Egypt. Now, that's act one in this story of grace. Hang in there with me. I'll tell you, there's a big payoff at the end. In Acts chapter 38, you come to Acts 2. Here's what happens in Acts 2 is that we're now beginning to trace Judah, and he marries a Canaanite woman by the name of Shua. And Judah and Shua have three sons. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And Ur marries a woman by the name of Tamar. So Tamar becomes Judah's daughter-in-law. In verse 7, we learn that Ur did evil before the Lord, and the Lord took him out of this life. They had a custom in that day that would protect a woman from falling into destitution, and that is that if you became a widow, the male relatives of your former husband would marry you. Later, that became known as Levirate marriage. And that's exactly what happens. And so Onan marries Tamar. But he's not interested in really having children with her, and he does wrong things, and so the Lord takes out Onan. So you've got Ergon, you've got Onan God, and next in line, of course, is Shelah now. And in verse 11, this is where deception for Judah kicks in again. He says to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking you ought to just remain a widow. I don't, I, why don't you just go back to your father's house until my son Sheila grows up? See, because he was thinking, hey, if she marries the third son, he may die also. 
So he has no intention, really, ultimately, of Sheila ever marrying her. He just says, you know, I think you ought to go on. Go back to your dad's house. You hang out there. He grows up. You know, you'll get married sometime in the future. He has to have a little deception going because if he just openly refused, in the culture of the day, he would have undergone public humiliation because there was this custom. Well, I want you to notice verse 12. It says, after a considerable time, I don't know how many years went by, and Judah's wife dies, which means that under this little law of male relatives marrying a widow, he is now free to marry Tamar. So he could either marry Tamar himself or Sheila could be given to her. But he doesn't do either one of those things. Verse 13 talks about the time came when there was going to be this sheep shearing festival. You have to be careful how you say that, sheep shearing festival. And that was a time when a lot of money would flow. And Tamar hears about Judah going to that festival, and so she has this little plan. Notice verse 14. She removes her widow's garments, and she covers herself with a veil and wrapped herself. She was basically dressing like a temple prostitute. And she goes to the gate of the city. It was at the gate of the city where all financial transactions would take place. And she's waiting for Judah to come along. And guess what? Judah does not recognize her. I know she was veiled, but he still doesn't recognize her after they talk because he had so little contact with her. Notice verse 16, what happens? He turns aside to her by the road, and he says, hey, pretty woman, <laughs> you know, can I come in to you? Can we have a little physical thing happening? He didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she says to him, what will you give to me that you may come into me? I mean, what's going to be the payment here? And it's interesting. He says, well, I will send you a young goat from my flock, you know, somewhere back at home. Now, I mean, I don't know what physical transactions for this kind of event really are today, but in that day, a young goat apparently was a going rate, you know. 4,000 years ago, that was a good thing to get a young goat for such an event happening. But, of course, she doesn't trust him when he says, I'll send you a young goat when I get back home. So basically, she says to him, I need a deposit I need a deposit from you, and here's what I want. I want your seal and your cord. A seal was a family stamp for transactions that you would have in a chain around your neck. And she said, I also want your staff, which was this unique carved walking stick. And so he gives them to her, and they do their little physical thing. And guess what? Verse 18, she gets pregnant. He goes home after the festival, verses 20 and 21. He gets the young goat, has an official send back to pay it off. He gets there to the place, and he says, "Uh, where's the, verse 21, where's the temple prostitute who is by the road? And they said, well, there never was a temple prostitute here. So eventually that word gets back to Judah, verse 23. He says, well, I guess we'll just let her keep those things. We don't know where she is, and And after all, I don't want to become a laughing stock. I don't want to tell people I gave my key family items to a prostitute. Well, what happens when you are pregnant? Eventually, 
people find out. And in verse 24, three months later, Tamar begins to show. And the word comes back to Judah. Oh my goodness, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, verse 24, has played the harlot and she was with child. Notice what he says there. Bring her out and let her be burned. You know, a typical hypocrite. Someone else does something, capital crime. I want to wipe her off the face of the planet. Go get her. Now think about it for a moment. Think about Judah. He was willing to kill his own brother. He decided rather to sell his own brother for financial gain to human traffickers. He had knowingly crushed his father's own heart who'd been mourning for multiple years the loss of his son Joseph. He had promised to do right by his daughter-in-law Tamar, and he'd schemed to avoid the whole thing. But now he's saying, oh, this needs to be dealt with. Well, verse 25, Tamar says, you know what? I want to send back this seal and this cord and this staff. And she says, here's the message back to Judah. I'm pregnant by the one to whom these things belong. You know, of course, Judah had stirred up a big crowd. He found himself boxed in. And suddenly, you know, these things come to him. And at the end of verse 26, he basically has to admit that she's more righteous than I am. He makes really a public confession because he had been shown to be a liar and a hypocrite. Now, I just want to stop for a moment. This freeze frame here, okay? How are you feeling about Judah right now? How are you feeling about him? They have just more than a little scoundrel in him. Now, meanwhile, I'll have you know, it's been 20 years since they sold Joseph into Egypt, and now he's the number two guy in Egypt. That leads us to Act 3. Now, remember, hang in here with me because there's a big payoff at the end. Over to chapter 42. Remember the story of what happens in Israel? There's this incredible food famine. The only place in the entire region that has food is Egypt. And so Jacob says to his brothers, I want you all to go down there as a contingent, and I want you to get food from Egypt. But he says, I'm leaving Benjamin with me. I mean, he'd lost Joseph from his favorite wife, and I'm not losing Benjamin. So they go down, and of course, they don't know that they're meeting with Joseph, who is dressed as an Egyptian royal official. He speaks the language of the Egyptians. He speaks Egyptian. And he meets with his brothers, who he hasn't seen for all of these decades, and he really wants to know whether or not they've really changed it all. So he begins to put them to a little test in verse 9 and verse 14. He begins to say to them, you know what? I think you guys are spies down here. And basically, he begins to press them that I need to see your youngest brother before really I'm going to help you. Well, through a series of events that happens, he allows the brothers to return They go back up to Israel with some food, but guess what happens? The famine gets worse. Verse 43, chapter 43, verse 1, the famine was really severe in the land. And and basically what ends up happening is Jacob says to his sons, you got to go back. You got to go back for more food. All of our families are going to die. And isn't it interesting that Judah still being the leader in chapter 43, verse 3, says to him, hey, we can't go down there because that guy down there, that Egyptian, told us that we couldn't ever see his face again unless Benjamin came with us. And that causes, obviously, a lot of stress in Jacob's mind. 
tremendous amount of stress. And ultimately, what happens in verses 8 and 9 is that Judah goes, we need to have food. He said, Dad, here's what I'm going to do. He said, I'll personally guarantee you that Benjamin's going to be safe. I'll personally guarantee that. So they go down, and they go down into Egypt again. And something very interesting happens in the latter part of uh, chapter 43. Notice verse 27. Uh, Joseph sees his brothers again. Now Benjamin is with them, and he says, How's your father doing? Is he still alive? Yeah, our dad is still alive. And then he lifted his eyes at verse 29, and he saw his brother Benjamin, which he hadn't seen for decades. And he says, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke? And he said to him, May God be gracious to you, my son. But then there was verse 30. Joseph hurried out of that meeting, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. And then, verse 31, he washed his face, and he came out, and he said, let's have a meal together. And then in chapter 44, there is this final test that Joseph gives of his brothers. He gives them all the stuff. They're all laden up with food. And he takes his own personal silver cup and he tells people to put that in Benjamin's sack. Then they leave the city and then he sends the army out to get them saying, someone stole my silver cup. And of course, they find it in Benjamin's sack and everyone thinks Benjamin is going to be killed and they all have to come back to the city. And then here in chapter 44, in verse 30, we get the first inkling of some character on the behalf of Joseph. Because basically he thinks he's going to take Benjamin out. And he says in verses 30 to 34, hey, leave young Benjamin alone. But Judah says, take me. If you need to leave a hostage here, take me. And that was very moving. Look at chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood them in the royal court And he said, everyone, get out of here. And there was no man with him when Joseph finally made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I am the one that you sold all those years ago. And notice the response of the brothers at the end of verse 3. They were dismayed. (laughs) Can you imagine what's on Judah's mind? The one who masterminded this whole deal, he's thinking, uh-oh, I'm going to get mine now. But if you know the story, you know that God was working in Joseph's heart. And it's an expression of God's amazing grace. Notice in chapter 45, verse 5, Joseph says, Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth to keep you alive. It was not you who sent me here, verse 8, but God. God was in it. And you think, man, that's an incredible grace. But it's not over, men and women. We've now got Act 4. Hang in there with me. This is pretty cool. Go to chapter 49. In chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob is dying. And the tradition in that day is that when you would die you would give a blessing, general blessing to your sons, but you would particularly give a special blessing. God bless you. (laughs) 
the special blessing that would come, and by the way, it normally went to the firstborn, a double portion of the inheritance, and you would be named the functional head of the family unit. Who was the oldest of all of these boys? Do you remember? Reuben was the oldest. But the special blessing that would be given was at the discretion of the father. Now, if we were going to just freeze frame again, and if you were going to guess, who's Jacob going to give the blessing to? You might say, well, probably Joseph. I mean, he got more done than anyone else. Or you might say, maybe Reuben, because he tried to save Joseph's life. But what's interesting is that's not what happens. In verses 3 and 4, Reuben steps up, and his father doesn't give him the special blessing, saying that he had dishonored his dad earlier in his life. In verses 5 and 6, Simeon and Levi step up, and they don't receive the special blessing because Jacob says, you have been violent. The next person in line is, guess who? Judah. The one who is the mastermind of the sale of Joseph, the one who had been so callous to his father, Jacob. The one who spent much of his life being a deceiver and a hypocrite, who was full, his life was full of screw-ups and blunders. Guess who gets the blessing? Judah does. I want to read to you verse 10 from the New Living Translation. Basically what Jacob says to Judah is, your descendants are going to be kings. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will obey. The blessing by the grace of God falls on Judah. You know your history? You know that the kings of Israel came from where? From the tribe of Judah. The Messiah men and women came from the tribe of Judah of Judah. That's God's generous, undeserved goodness. That's his amazing grace that extends to undeserving people. See, God has always been a God of grace. See, men and women, we have our own sets of screw-ups and failures and blunders. We're undeserving of the grace of God, but he extends it nonetheless. Now, the second thing I want to look at is that grace is all over the place. It's not only all over the place in Scripture, it's all over the place in our own lives. I want to just highlight some key verses from the Bible that stresses this. Paul writes the first from 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. You and I could make the exact same statement. It's by the grace of God I am what I am. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? The answer to that question for every one of us is nothing. Everything we got, we have received from God. John the baptizer says in John 3, 27, A man can receive nothing unless it is given him from heaven. Oh, we can be so prideful about this and this and that that we thought we got, we've got nothing except it came from heaven. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul writes, he says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Why would you have a big swelled head thinking, I've earned everything I got? No, it's all a matter of grace. 
Chuck Swindoll paints this picture, I think, rather crisply for us. He writes this. He says, in our day of high-powered self-achievement and overemphasis on the importance of personal accomplishments and building one's own ego-centered kingdom, this idea of giving grace the credit is a much-needed message. How many people who reach the pinnacle of their career say to the Wall Street Journal reporter or in an interview to Businessweek, I am what I am by the grace of God? How many athletes would say that kind of thing at a banquet in his or her honor? What a shocker it would be today if someone were to say, don't be impressed at all with me. My only claim to fame is the undeserved grace of God. Is that your perspective today? That your only claim to fame is the undeserved grace of God? Men and women, it's true. Do you realize that God gave you the opportunity to be? You didn't deserve that. He gave that to you. He gave you your intelligence level. He gave you your appearance. He, he gives to us the food that we have. He gives to us air conditioning. Wow, yeah. When you have the kind of summer we've had, what a tremendous expression of the grace of God. See, what happens is we tend to whine and complain. When we're whining and complaining, we have lost our grasp on grace. Think about the last things that you were whining and complaining about. Wayne and Ed Russell will tell me about this girl named Brittany. She's 18 years old. Just 18 years old, she's had leukemia two times. She's had breast cancer. She's had a heart transplant. She's lost her mom and her dad and her sister to death. And today, she's, she's in ICU. And what was it you were whining, whining and complaining about? You see, it's all the grace of God. The finances that you have an expression of the grace of God. The very place that you were born is the grace of God. The fact that you get to live in an advanced era of medical care is the grace of God. The fact that you have more than one shirt or blouse is an expression of the grace of God. The fact that you're able to live in a house or an apartment, that you have a car, that you have a paycheck is an expression of the grace of God. The fact that you may have children or you may have friends is an expression of the grace of God. The fact that you even have your own Bible is the grace of God. Mark was telling me a story that goes back to Ethiopia in the time of the communist rule, not too awfully long ago. And what happened is this CEO of Compassion International went there and he met this Ethiopian pastor. And he said to the Ethiopian pastor, I represent a group of believers from back in the United States who have been praying for you Ethiopian believers. And he said back to him, I represent a number of believers here in Ethiopia who've been praying for the believers in the United States of America. And the CEO goes, well, why are you praying for the believers in the United States of America? And he said, here's what we've heard. We've heard that the believers in the United States of America have actually multiple copies of the Bible, each one of them, and they don't even read it. And he said, we, in our whole area... He said, we only had one copy of the Bible, and it was so precious to us. And in fear of the communists tearing it up, he said, what we did is we tore out chapters, and I gave it to certain individuals and told them to go memorize that chapter. 
and then to destroy the pages. And so then when we come together and we assemble, he said, I'll just call on so-and-so to recite that particular passage of the Word of God. See, men and women, it's all the grace of God. No wonder that Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10, describing God, he says, he is the God of all grace. The God of all grace. He is the, the God of amazing grace. He extends his grace to undeserving people. And then there is a key principle we want to look at very quickly as we end. It's a revolutionary principle, by the way, if you get it. It comes from 1 Peter 5.5. 5. It says this. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, men and women, pride constricts grace. When we have humility, it opens the door for more grace. When we have real humility before God, he will give us more of his generous, undeserved goodness. You know, you're, you're doing a series on amazing grace at makes you keep going back to John Newton's famous song, Amazing Grace. And by the way, David Jeremiah does a great job in his book on grace, on the background of that song. I want to share part of what he, he tells us about. It was New Year's in 1773. And John Newton was reading First Chronicles 17.16. And this is what it said. It says there, Then... King David went in and sat before the Lord. And King David said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? See, King David was saying, Who am I to have received your amazing grace? I, I don't deserve what I was given. I don't deserve I didn't earn it for, by what I had done. It's just your generous, undeserved goodness that you have gifted to me, God. And I want you to see that verse again. And it was a particular phrase that just jumped out at John Newton. And that was that phrase, who am I? And that phrase was the impetus and the inspiration behind him penning the song we know as Amazing Grace. Let me ask you the question, when is the last time you said to God, who am I? When is the last time you said to God, I'm amazed by your grace towards me? We're going to close our time today by singing a song that is really my favorite song, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up here as we get ready to do this. And this is going to be our response to the message today. That song is the song, Who Am I? by Casting Crowns. I love this song. Here's part of the lyrics we're going to sing in a moment. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name and would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Let's celebrate the amazing grace of God right now by singing this song.